everyone, I'm Nikki Sharma, an anaesthetic reg, dog lover, and a recovering workaholic. And I'm Nadia Taylor, an anaesthetic SHO, mum to two little ones, and self-proclaimed foodie. And you're listening to Coffee and a Gas, a podcast about all things well-being for anaesthetists of all ages and stages. Looking after ourselves is more important now than ever. We're here to explore our bad habits, fears and concerns, as well as learning the strategies to combat them and feel well. We're chatting about things like stress management, diet and sleep, and talking to some pretty great people along the way. So whether you're listening to us with a cup of tea in hand after a tough day at work, or nursing your morning coffee waiting for the bus, we hope you enjoy this journey of feeling well together. We are delighted to welcome you to our first in-person recording of the Coffee and a Gas podcast, coming to you from the Association of Anaesthetists Training Conference here in Newcastle. We are also honoured to be joined today by Professor Michael Trinnell. He is a Professor of Lifestyle Medicine and Digital Health at Newcastle University and CEO of Changing Health, an organisation which uses cutting-edge technology and artificial intelligence to help people with diabetes and other chronic diseases. And he's here today to talk to us about how to stay young. Hello, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure and it's been great to be with the association for the last couple of days. Like you, it's amazing seeing real actual people uh, physically in the same room. It really is. So Mike, if you wouldn't mind just start um, telling our audience a little bit about you, your background and why you became interested in this field. Several questions in one, but they, but thank you. Uh, I guess the thing is, I'm I'm a geek. I like and I'm fascinated by complex questions. And if I have a look at what I do today, I'm really interested in helping people at scale tackle big problems like obesity, social inequalities, healthcare inequalities. Uh, but I didn't start off with that as being the ambition. I started off wanting to play sport. So when I was young, I wanted to play sport all the time and my grades were okay, nothing special. And then uh, you fast forward a few years and I had one back operation that became 11. I was housebound for two years. My grades got a lot better and I was told that I was dyslexic. And I went, hang on, you've got the wrong guy here. And they said, oh, no, you definitely read words in a very special way. And so they taught me to read. I read my first novel when I was 22, 23. Um, and therein came a fascination to learn. And I started learning deep into biochemistry, genetics, which were my original passions. I retrained, did physics, learned how to program MRI scanners, I moved out to Australia. Um, and then came back to the UK, retrained again in uh, strategy and innovation, and then retrained finally in, in artificial intelligence at MIT. Um, and each one of those has been completely unplanned. So like uh, you asked, what's the journey? Unplanned, um, but pick up something that's interesting and a big problem, and then go, go after it. Great. So talk to me a bit more about that specific problem that you're interested in. And why you think it's such an important problem? The problem that I'm really interested in is uh, two things: are behaviours and healthcare inequalities. Uh, now that sounds strange for somebody who majored in biochemistry and genetics, of course, where everything is very deterministic. 
And the reason for that is, is really, I, I, it came from one conversation with a patient. So in 2006, a lady called Monica, who lives in the Northeast, said to me, Mike, why has my doctor never told me that walking is good for my diabetes? Now, for the geeks on, online, we were looking at mitochondrial ATP flux in type 2 diabetes, reprogrammed MRI scanners, great science. And this lady transformed my entire career in one sentence. And I find it crazy that the way that we build healthcare systems uh, is, is wrong. Um, and I'm on a mission to try and challenge that. And that's nothing new. So I'm not saying it's my idea and it's my revelation. It's actually the fact that you can see some of the inequalities and some of the things we need to do better. So, for example, uh, William Beveridge, after the, after the last World War, created, and his bang-on message for this week, is the NHS turned 73. So that came from a report from a guy called William Beveridge, who created the Health and Social Care Act. And he had a number of recommendations, but there were two key ones. The first one was to create an infrastructure for acute care that didn't matter who you were, where you were from, what walk of life you were from, you would get access to care for free. And that was one way to keep your British society together in a post-war era. Now, that became obviously the NHS. And what we forget is there was a second recommendation that came, which is there needed to be an infrastructure to keep people well, to help them recover from acute illness, and the government, in its wisdom, said, well, we can't afford it. And so we've ended up with a healthcare system which is built around um, physical infrastructures and disciplines, like you see the heart doctor, or you see the liver doctor, you see uh, the diabetes doctor. And what we forget is that we only see those guys once a year, maybe even less than that. And we need to start thinking about how we support behavior outside of, of medicine. So that's what's got me really fascinated. And what I realize is it's really hard. I feel that you're demonstrating one of those behaviors at the moment. So obviously you can't see us, but Nikki and I are sitting down in front of our computers. But Mike, you're standing with a standing desk. And I think that's a perfect example of kind of just the importance of us understanding not living a sedentary lifestyle and even just a simple act of standing when you could be sitting is just something to, a, a part of the kind of an additive process to change your behavior into, into being well. So please don't feel guilty, actually. I, <laughs> I should be the one who should be guilty because um, we, uh, we behave as groups. And so for me, it's perfectly normal to stand because I stand as much as I can. Strangely, unless I have to think a lot, and if I think I need to sit down, so I, otherwise I just wander around the room. Um, but we work as groups, so I could have set the norm and not had any chairs in here, and we would have all stood. Now, in my previous offices, that's what I had, which is no chairs in, you come in and you stand. Your meetings are quicker, um, you get to the point, um, and it's a conversation starter. Um, but it takes energy to think differently. So, yeah, my fault that you're not standing, not yours. Um, but I do think there is a need for us to think quite deeply about behaviour, and that that takes energy to do things differently. What do you think the anaesthetists listening to us would think if we took away all the chairs in theatre? I mean, <laughs> I don't feel they'll be very happy with that, because I think it's sort of 
the whole case leads up to the point where you can sit down and have your do your crossword and you know do your paperwork but I think what's really interesting is about how your environment shapes your behaviors and how you do things passively without even thinking about them you know you go into a room there is a chair there's a low table and so you do that without actively thinking well actually my back is a bit sore it would be quite nice to to stand up but just going back to your talk at the conference yesterday you talk and you research about aging and one of the things you mentioned was about things that we currently look at our lifestyle and behavioral changes as how to prevent aging but actually we need to think about how to stay young and stay well so why do you think that shift of thinking is is important and what what could that maybe change for us Probably the most important thing that you've just described is we used to think of ageing as older people. Now, you don't. We age from the second we're born. And even for all of us, actually, many of our conditions are pre-programmed before we're even born. So uh, there's a a, a hypothesis called the the Barker hypothesis, which came from Southampton, which is looking at intrauterine environments. So as a mum, you can pre-program your child's uh, risk of propensity for obesity based on your behaviour during uh, when you're carrying the child. Now that's fascinating to me because it, it just starts to show that every second of the day you're making decisions about how fast you age. Not older people, but every second. And, and if you're a mum or a dad even, like the behaviours that you have carry on a, a flow through into the next generation that come through. So aging is not older people. You age from the second uh, you're conceived. And even some of your determinants of aging are determined before that by your parents. And that for me is great because there are so many opportunities to make different choices. And there are so many opportunities to not follow what everybody else does. Um, and that's why I'm excited about COVID. I think I must be one of the few people who's excited. Um, it's been horrendous. Now, please don't get me wrong, but being the glass half full guy that I like to try and be, that we've reset behaviours. And for most of us, we're thinking more about our physical health, our mental health, our relationships with others, more than we ever have done before. And now's the time to start to instill how do we age well? How do we stay young? Mike, you're making me worried about my kids. I wish I'd heard this, what, five years ago before I started having them. Let's hope that I set them off on the right start. I think also you've mentioned COVID and obviously the last year has been a very intense year for healthcare workers. And obviously both Nadia and I have been on the front line in the last year. We as a healthcare working group, we've got a lot of traditional risk factors for chronic diseases, metabolic disease, and aging. Are there things that we can think about in our work and in our personal lives that perhaps we could start to address? And what do you think those could be? It's a really good question. I think as healthcare workers, we sometimes prioritize other people's health over our own. And I think that is something that's embedded in culture. And it's something that I found really hard. So uh, I would spend all day trying to work with people with, with metabolic disease, trying to make them make different food choices, uh, sleep better, become more physically active. And then I'd walk to the canteen down the street and it would be a big brand 
that can afford the the tenancy in the hospital and there would be suites everywhere um, and the food would be contrary to all the messaging that we had and that's changed. I, I'm really proud to say that the Royal Victoria Infirmary, uh, which is the hospital 200 metres from where we are, has changed the food culture and it has fresh fruit and veg and I think as a result of that, we're starting to see some flow-on effects to staff. Let us start with ourselves, because unless we look after ourselves, we can't ask our patients. It's really hard to do, and we don't, we won't believe in it. Um, and it's it, you can see it in the workforce. So the NHS has the highest rates of absenteeism, presenteeism, mental health problems, obesity problems, lower back pain. Um, it's the UK's largest employer. Um, we talk about duty of care clinically all the time, whereas the duty of care actually is to the NHS workforce. COVID has shown we need those people. They, they are the backbone of our, our society. And if we don't look after that backbone, we're going to have some big problems in the future. I think you're totally right about COVID putting a spotlight on healthcare workers' own health and making that a priority. And I think you're right, we have made some changes like the things that served in canteens and you know, more advice about being physically fit and cycle schemes and things. But I think we also have a way to go, like using you standing, for an example. It would be great to have standing desks at work and for that to be something that could be an option. I think small little changes like that would definitely make a a difference. I was thinking about this in advance. I was thinking, I always have that excuse of, I've just done a 13-hour shift. I can't face doing some exercise today. Oh, I'm leaving at five in the morning. I can't be bothered to make myself a pat lunch. And I was thinking that there, there has to be something that we as a cohort can do to change the way we spend our days to try and make them more healthy. And I was thinking, what, what changes do you think we could do just in our day-to-day as we are at work that perhaps you've seen people do or you have, as you were saying, you, you with the standing desk in your old office... Are there any suggestions that you think we could take away? So changing generic behaviour is difficult. So I'll give you a great example. So I stand all of the time. I had a standing desk. And then we started to look at, actually, yeah, I I live this. I should be embracing it. And then realised that to buy standing desks for every single member of my team would cost me nearly £30,000. And so then there becomes the real cost. So... Do I have the budget to spend on it? And I think that is, it's a tough thing to say. So, but I think there are ways to look at doing, creating culture change without having a full full hog into spending £30,000 on, on, on standing desks for everybody. I also think there's a need for us to reframe what we're doing. So, um I, and I'll talk about me because that's the, the person I know best. For me, going to the gym or doing exercise was a bit of indulgence. Like I, I used to feel guilty that I would go out for a half hour run um, when I had so many jobs to do at home. I had a, an email inbox that was overflowing. I had calls coming left, right and centre. And my reference for that was completely wrong because if... And what I'd encourage people to do is look at reframing how we look at self-care and we reframe how we look after ourselves. The best thing that I can do for my kids is to look after me. 
Um, I'm a nicer person when I've exercised. Um, I'm brighter, so I'm, I'm smarter if you exercise. Um, I feel better about myself because I don't have the excess weight that I, I carry. I get the endorphins. Um, I'm also more likely to be productive at work. So rather than it being an indulgence, my encouragement is to think about self-care and, and your lifestyle as something that allows you to perform. So if you are going to do a 13-hour shift, um, it's not an indulgence to go for a run. It's resetting the system so that you can do another 13-hour shift, that you're sharper, you make less mistakes, you're nicer. Um, you don't have um, some of the mental health breaks that we know that can accumulate over time if you don't stop and recharge yourself. So my, my encouragement would be, please don't think about looking after yourself as an indulgence. Actually, this is a priority for you. And it's a priority for your families, for your relationships, for you, for your work. So that's my encouragement is, instead of saying, well, eat slightly better. Well, we all know we should. Um, move more. Well, we know we should as well. And then sleep better. Heck, we all wish we could sleep more, especially if you have young children or you're on shift. But it's a priority. And it's not you looking after yours, it's not you indulging, it's you making sure you can optimise your performance. So that's the mind shift I would encourage people to think about. It's interesting when you talk about performance, because with your work in changing health, one of the things that you, from my understanding of what you do, is to look at individual data and use sort of app-based technology to monitor people's trends and health trends. And Nadia and I were talking about the use of wearable technology. So things like, you know, watches that track your steps and sleep and heart rate and then how that correlates to how you've spent your day. What do you think about these kind of personal items and how do you think we could probably use them in our day to day in an effective way? So wearables have exploded in the last in the last decade. Now, I'll give you two views. The first one is um, the more the, the holistic view of a population level, and then I'll come in specifically to speak about um, anaesthetists and how it can help you in your day-to-day. -day. Now, I was really fortunate to live on the west coast of the US when brands like Fitbit were all exploding, and we did a whole range of work around them, and the you could take all of that work and summarize it in one sentence, that a wearable says more about you than it does to you. Just repeat that. A wearable says more about you than it does to you. It says that you can afford to wear a wearable, that you're engaged in your health, and as a consequence, you're more likely to be active. You're more likely to have a good diet. So if we look at some of the biggest societal challenges, wearables will go to the, the likes of people who are already well. So the fact that you're a doctor means you're in a way privileged because you can afford to make food choices. You can afford to live in a place where the environment around you is safe, where you can uh, make choices about your health. I don't think the wearable necessarily means that you're doing them. It's just you're keeping an eye on them. The, the bigger challenge is how do we take those who are most likely to be overweight, most likely to have heart disease, most likely to, to develop long-term conditions. And those are so tightly correlated or associated with socioeconomic status. Those who need the help can't afford a wearable. 
So what will it give you? Uh, the first thing is it says that you can afford to make health decisions, which means that you can afford to look after yourself. You can afford to invest in your performance. Coming back to my previous point, what it will show you is it will allow you to keep track and it will allow you to stay on track. So do use them. They're good for you seeing when you come off, um, particularly your weight, because people weight accumulates. I don't know what happens. Like it, happens, it comes out of nowhere that suddenly you will get a real gain weight. Um, whereas if you're keeping a closer eye on it, then actually you're less likely to, to gain that weight in the first place. It will show you the impact of your behavior, those long shifts on your physical activity, the long shifts on your sleep patterns. Be aware of them and be aware of the impact on your performance. But from a healthcare perspective, uh, wearables, I think, have got a long way to go before they become more pervasive in addressing healthcare inequalities. Really, I did not expect that to be the answer. I thought you would turn around and say, well, if you've done X, that means Y. It's actually really fascinating for me to realise that, that what you said in that first sentence about how a wearable says more about you than it does to you, which makes me rethink about whether I should be carrying on wearing my wearable. <laughs> what does it say to other people? <laughs> yeah, but now, please don't get me wrong. As I said, it keeps you on track and it means that it will work for you. Yeah. Um, buying a wearable won't get you fitter. Um, the fact that you've already bought it means that you're more likely to be fit uh, anyway. So, going on from that, is there any, I, you know, I'm a novice in this field. To me, a wearable is as far as kind of my digital technology slash AI information knowledge, you know, goes. Do you see anything in the future in terms of digital technology specifically for our audience that might be of use or if not for our audience that our audience can take back to our patient population the most exciting thing for me in technology is if we have a look at other sectors not in healthcare but have a look to see what's happened in other sectors over the last 10 15 20 years now um, I think I'm slightly older than you are but I'll use an example you may or may not remember uh, so blockbusters remember going to get DVDs Friday, Friday night at Blockbusters yeah. Yeah, and, and the random arguments I used to have when we would they didn't have the DVD I wanted and then now Blockbusters no longer exists its whole model got rewritten by online software that uses algorithms to say actually Mike you like things like this and it better places content for me um, I'll pay more for that because I can consume more content and it's more relevant to me. What I think we're starting to see in self-care, and this isn't medicine, I'll use self-care, is, is the ability for us to learn about the same types of data, purchase patterns, movement patterns, where you live, to help tailor services to an individual. Now, they give you another example. So Amazon annoys me because it knows I wear waistcoats a lot. Okay, so what it does is it suggests waistcoats, but what annoys me even more is waistcoats, not just waistcoats, waistcoats I will like. Okay, so we should be doing the same thing. So I, the work that we're doing at Changing Health is not just saying, so um, Nikki and Nadia, you both will exercise in different ways. You will eat different foods. For me to say you should eat less and move more without understanding the depth of your own personal preferences is crazy. It's like me having a DVD shop that I just stock full of DVDs and I try to tell you, sell you the top 10. 
the future of uh, self-care for me is using the data about an individual to say, actually, your diet preferences mean that you like foods like this. If you would, the best outcomes could be achieved by using this type of dietary approach, whether it be higher protein, lower carbohydrates. Whereas for Nadia, actually the thing you should be looking at is your sleep because your sleep is meaning that you're tired so your diet preferences are slightly out of kilter. So what I see is the big transformation which is coming our way is the ability to personalize those. Go away from one size fits all into highly personalized uh, behavior change. Now that really excites me. And it excites me because the opportunities for healthcare are enormous because we know that we only see patients for a very brief moment in time. But imagine having a patient that came in that got the best possible preparation to come in for surgery, whether that be diet, physical activity, sleep, so that their outcomes were optimized for them. And the outcomes means not just surviving surgery, but recovering from surgery, spending less time in hospital, and then providing them with the best rehabilitation approaches. That is the future of healthcare. And it's where, instead of us just seeing people behind our own brick walls, we look at the user or the patient's entire journey from being told that they need support from a hospital into the recovery from it. That joined up way of thinking, that's that's really exciting. So it sounds like to me that actually these the technologies in the future that you're talking about is perfect for our perioperative medicine and perioperative medicine colleagues. And that's really where we as a cohort could be looking into kind of joining up this research or this future because we all know that optimizing a patient perioperatively gives better outcomes. It's very simple. And the other thing I want to point out is that this is now, we've recorded four of these podcasts. This is the second, if not third or fourth time we've discussed the importance of personalization. We discussed it in the medicine is not a one size fits all anymore. And we really need to start thinking about our patients, not just as a checklist of chronic diseases that we see in that next patient who's got the same checklist of chronic diseases. But what is actually, what are their other personal assets, assets, risk factors, whatever you want to call it, and how are we going to change our approach to that patient to ensure that our care is more personalised? Then I think that really is is something to, to consider for the future. And I and I think also for ourselves when it look when we look at our own well being, like you said, if someone says to you, "Oh, you need to move more," that doesn't inspire you very much but if someone said to me or if I saw oh Nikki here is a yoga class that just starts 10 minutes after you finish work it's the type of yoga you like it's 45 minutes and it's on your way home if so you know if if, I, if the data pointed me to do that I would probably be like yeah I'd go go to this you know this this is this fits into my life and this is so much easier to do uh, than just simply move more so you were talking yeah, me that, that yoga class, I'd say, no, thanks very much, I'm off to spin. So. But for Nadia, it would be spin, which yeah. is my idea of health. So I think, <laughs> you know, it is personal. I think we've discussed a lot today. So I just want to try and summarise or a few take-home points that you, you would like to give us or take-home points that we've taken away. So three things that you think we need to take away from this meeting today. The first would be, I think, for for you as a healthcare professional is to prioritize your own health. And because that will help 
you at home, it will help you at work. And it's not an indulgence to do. It's actually part of, part of your duty of care to the people around you to, to look after yourself. The second point that I would, I would make is to be thinking about an individual, their entire user journey. So that's what we would call it from a, a digital perspective, but not just the person that sits in front of you. Think about their entire care pathway because you, there are so many ways that you can help somebody get better outcomes um, from the time they spend with you by looking at what they do before and what they do after. That might not necessarily be your uh, responsibility or you might not be accountable for it, but you might be able to, to bring in other people around you, particularly when we have waiting lists that are exploding. What can we really be doing to get people ready for for the event that they're going to have and the third thing i think is in the future we're going to see technologies change the way that we provide our service and the future isn't 10 15 20 years the future is now and onwards so we're starting to see that we're we're launching the first national behavior change program for people with type 2 diabetes these technologies exist and I think now is the time for you as trainees, the leaders of the future, to be reimagining your roles and the services that are around. And I do think technology will play a key role in that. Mike, it's been really fascinating talking to you. And thank you so much for giving us a lot to think about, perhaps a different way to think about our own days, but also how to perhaps be better clinicians and use technology in, in, in new ways. Um, it's been great talking to you and uh, we'll all try and stay younger for longer. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Coffee and a Gas. We would love to hear what you think, so please leave us a comment on the Association of Anaesthetists website. And if you found this podcast useful and enjoyable, make sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. See you next time.